0: But at the end of the story, when she rebuts him and gives her illustration, Jesus goes ahead and says, great is your faith. Like your faith, this is an example of your faith, not just for saying this, but like what you said is the definition of faith. And because of it, you're, you're going to have your daughter healed. So faith in Mark and Matthew for the Syrophoenician woman is telling Jesus, no, you're wrong. And rooting it, in this case, in God's justice, in morality, in logic, and then saying, nope, what you've said doesn't make sense. And God goes, yep, you win. That's how you do it. Good job. That's faith. Hey, disciples, were you paying attention? This Gentile woman, this quote-unquote dog, just told me no. Have you guys ever told me no? No no you 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 reject my teachings all the time but you don't ever tell me no you just go yes sir yes sir she said no you should take pointers from her that's what faith looks like
1: hey there welcome back to the show i'm seth this is the can i say this at church podcast which you should already know because you downloaded it but maybe you have one of those podcast players that automatically auto plays and if that's the case and you haven't subscribed hit the button while you're hitting buttons click the patreon button you can find that at the website you can find that in the show notes but I do hope you find it I want you to click it I want you to hit the box and and support the show this show is 100% not ad supported so I am very thankful for every single one of you that does support the show and would ask a handful more of you to go ahead and hit that button I will do my best to make it worth your while. Today I spoke with Matthew Cortman, who has, you'll hear at the beginning, like, just he's just too many degrees. Like, the guy is just crazy smart. And it's it's a little bit intimidating, if I'm honest, but we talk about a concept of literally saying no to God and how we're called to literally recognize what we think people are saying that God is saying, or a way of speaking with other people, and just putting a flag in the ground and saying, no, no to you, no to this situation and no to God. I'm not going to do that. And I know that probably doesn't make sense right now, but I think it will at the end. And so to add to the list of the February episodes that were really deep and packed full of information, you know, both with Vince and with Nathan Jacobs, another really fantastic episode. I cannot wait to hear your feedback on this one. Here we go. Matthew Cortman, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. And um, I said this to you earlier, um, but for those listening, my voice is more raspy because everybody in my family, except for my wife and son, decided to get the flu. And that was myself included. And so I'm like 27 hours off of that. But the rasp is nice. I'm liking the rasp. So I'm going to go with it. But welcome to the show, Matthew.
0: Thank you so much for having me. You and your raspy
1: voice. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I like to start off with this question, and I pre warned you a bit. But when I said, when I would tell somebody, "Hey, I'm talking with Matthew tonight, and here's who he is." Like, what are the things that you're like? Yeah, if you need to know anything about me, this is who I am, and here's why that matters.
0: Oy. man. Uh, yeah. What do you need to know about me? Um, all right. So I can give you like the CV quickly. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I'm currently a student at Yale Divinity School. I'm doing a Master of Arts in Religion, uh, concentrating on Second Temple Judaism. For those that don't know, that just is a fancy word, that phrase that means that I study the period of history of the Jews from when they returned from the Babylonian exile in like 400s to the time that the Romans destroyed the temple in 70. Uh, So that involves early Christianity, the Apocrypha, early rabbinics, all that fun stuff, all wrapped, and even Gnosticism, all wrapped up into a fun little bow. Um, But it's also exciting because it's a very interdisciplinary degree, which means I have to do a lot of work on the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament. And I kind of have to be able to work in pretty much the whole range of history to have a good idea of how it's working at this one point in time which of course the first century in particular with the rise of christianity is such a extremely important and dynamic period you really have to know a lot of information Mm. to understand it Uh, no one aspect will help you so i'm doing studies like that my background before yale Was um, I did four degrees uh, in my undergrad um, back in California at La Sierra University. I did religious studies, archaeology, philosophy, and uh, film and television.
1: How long have you been in school?
0: I I finished the four degrees in five years, um, which was definitely already one year more than I wanted to stay there anymore by that point in time. I was like, oh man, okay, it's worth it. But I did. I got through it. Um, I've been at Yale. This is my second year. I'll be graduating in May and God willing I'll be going on to do a PhD in New Testament uh, this fall. So that's kind of like that is the academic sort of perspective. I've also been published in some various academic journals for biblical studies Um, I have a chapter coming up on the role of the Apocrypha in Protestant history that'll be coming out in an upcoming Oxford handbook volume. Uh, So like I'm young, I'm active, I'm doing stuff that isn't just popular theology. So if someone's listening and they're like, oh, this is, interesting okay this guy is writing stuff I don't know if there's someone snobby out there uh, you know <laughs> um, I'm doing both I'm doing academic stuff that's very rigorous peer-reviewed and I'm doing pastoral stuff that I think matters to the living community in the church yeah. uh, and so kind of I guess right then and there you kind of know I'm obsessively nerdy academically, (laughs) and I'm obsessively passionate about practice and understanding the life of the church. That's probably two very important things
1: to kind of summarize me. I love it. So I almost want to pivot and just say, what the heck do you mean about the role of the Apocrypha in Protestant history? I'm not going to do that because I'm not prepared for that, but we could also just talk for, I have two hours on this bad boy. We could just go. Um, (laughs) You believe me? If you get me started on the canon
0: and Apocrypha. (laughs) Oh, yeah. it's good. Actually, what's fun is my article, when it gets released, and I'm hopeful that it'll get released this year, the the volume, um, it'll be the first of its kind Mm. uh, chapter that kind of explores uh, how the Protestant Reformation treated the Apocrypha, which is not at all like how we currently talk about it. So gonna, it, it's not revision. It's revisionist in a sense of like it's revising what popular opinion is. Yeah. It's not revisionist in the sense of like I'm trying to reinterpret things. Huh. It's it's more or less that like, well, like Martin Luther, he actually believed that First Maccabees was canon, and he states so. Hmm. And he stated other books he believed should be canon, but he wasn't sure, uh, like Tobit and Judith. And then you've got John Calvin, who thought that the book of Baruch was canonical. And already right there and then you're like, wait yeah, a second. Like those this aren't in is my Bible.
1: Not, I have 66 is, and you screwed with it. Leave it alone. But, but on,
0: <laughs> on top of that, this is not the narrative that we normally hear, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, no, no, no. The, Re- the Reformation got rid of those books or Martin Luther pushed them to the back of his Bible because he... He didn't want anything to do with them. right? There's a lot of sort of Protestant propaganda regarding like what we'd like to imagine why those books are gone. The funny thing is most of the apocrypha books didn't actually get taken out of the Bible, uh, most Protestant Bibles, until 100 years ago. Hmm. Like up until 1870, most Bibles had it. So it's only been
1: recently. This is happening
0: that the Apocrypha has been traditionally missing now. Hmm. So it's like, it's a really recent thing, and it was not done for any dogmatic reason. It was only financial that it ended up disappearing, cost-cutting with the British and Foreign Bible Society. Um, So it's really interesting, the history there, and you can really unpack it, but uh, it's certainly something that Protestants need to own up to and examine, because uh, Martin Luther's seeming goal was the hope that protestants were going to eventually deal with the canon and actually examine these books and figure out what they believed about them to date no church in protestantism has ever done that hmm. no yeah. one has ever gotten together and said let's examine whether the book of tobit could be scripture we just kind of ignored them pushed them and then eventually they just disappeared yeah. for financial reasons yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah it's the weirdest thing in the world honestly
1: question about when you graduate with four degrees. So I'm assuming you walked and received all four degrees at the same time. I do. So what color, what color thing do you wear? Where do you sit? <laughs> Cause you know, you're supposed to sit like in the, I don't know the. you're the,
0: the only person to ask this. Right.
1: Well, that's the way my brain works. Like I'm sitting there thinking of you like graduating. Like, so, so where do you sit? Do you pivot? Like, do you just bounce around and go up there four times? Like, how does this work?
0: Yeah. So basically uh, I'm trying to remember now. I know there was at least two different versions of the garb that I could wear, uh, the top part. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one was the College of Arts. Yeah, yeah, there was two, because basically I uh, two of my degrees fell under the College of Arts and two of my degrees fell under the college, the Divinity School. Mm-hmm. So I had two different uh, graduating garb I could wear. And, uh, of course, I, I chose the one that was Divinity School because that was... That was should have gone half a and half.
1: Party in the back and business in the front, or something. Yeah, That's what you yeah I
0: wasn't really wanting to break out that chainsaw. <laughs> but then, yeah, I mean, um, they give you they the divinity school gave me the two of their degrees on one diploma. But then the other, because it was part of the same school. But then. The other two gave
1: their like own. Like the was just cost-cutting measures. Can't exactly. do two pieces of paper. yeah. No yeah. one wants to just go <laughs> ahead and
0: give it to you. Um, but I, I actually did have, when I applied for master's programs, I did have different people go... You meant that these were your majors, right? And and that you heard what I that, said, <laughs> right? It's like no, no, no. I I meant that these were separate degrees. Oh, really? Yeah. There's actually, yeah. Now that I remember. It was Harvard that asked me that. Huh.
1: <laughs> that was cool. Harvard.
0: They were like, no, no. These are majors, right? Yeah. There's you didn't really do that. No, I did. Huh. I was crazy. Um, I did have a social life. I yeah. did. I even managed to find uh, the love of my life. Uh, so you know, uh, it is possible to do outrageously crazy things. If you have really good professors and uh, and a school that's willing to do crazy things and work with you, that's cool. That's why small liberal arts schools are sometimes better than <laughs> than the Monsters. bigger. Because when yeah. they get monster, they don't necessarily want to work with you.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Huh? I didn't know that. I don't think I've heard you say that anywhere else. But to be fair, I've only listened to you. I have not. One said other that. place. That's an exclusive. You know. That's, an exclusive that's, what, I you. that's, that's what I do. That's that's why. Why not? Um, so I also before we started recording, so. I expressed my ignorance, and so I'll do so now in public because I'm not going to edit this out. It's too much work. Like, I don't, so you, in your book, Saying No to God, uh, I don't want to bury the lead there. I
0: have a book? <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <laughs> uh, in your book that you have written in your free time between all of these degrees, Yale Divinity School, uh, it sounds like you got married and uh, I did whatever's happening with these balloons here, whatever that party was. You, you <laughs> that, that would be Valentine's. <laughs> oh, it's a little early. So, um, uh, a, a little It's hours, a early. little,
0: it's tomorrow. It's hours
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so <laughs>
0: I hope you're not, I hope that wasn't news for you.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, I, I knew that it was, um, happily married many, many years. Um, so Good. I'm going to I'm catch gonna, up to you. I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> so, so you talk about in your book a couple times, and you reference other um, uh, pillars in your in your denomination of Adventism. And so by that, you mean Seventh-day Adventism, correct?
0: Yes. Seventh-day so, Adventists like to cut down the
1: name to uh,
0: Adventists. Hey,
1: it's it's fine. I'm, I'm not overly familiar with either, because if like most Protestants, um, I'll lump myself in there as well, you kind of get in your own two or three little ponds, and you don't swim in other ponds, because yep. I know the language in this pond, and I know the way the currents work, and... Etc. So, what are the what are some of those differences, and kind of how does that inform the way that you do theology?
0: Yeah. So, uh, okay, uh, I'd say that um, as with every denomination, you kind of have to talk about it on two different levels. One, there is the way the denomination is presently experienced widely by people in this present context, and then there is. What are the foundations that kind of made this denomination what it was and, you know, still gives it life? Those are always going to be two different things. So on the one hand, um, I'm going to give you right now the description of its foundations, which will sound great. Right. (laughs) But then in like practice, Mm -hmm. you know, there may be a bit of a disconnect in terms of the average uh, or not the average, but a a number of Adventists you might end up meeting depending on your location and, and so forth. Um, so like Adventism has a number of core beliefs. So the full name Seventh-day Adventism tells you two of the main beliefs. The first one is Seventh-day, which refers to the literal observance of the Seventh-day Saturday as the Sabbath, similar to, um, the Jews who keep Saturday from, and we do it the same way, Friday, uh, sundown to Saturday sundown, um, the Jewish and biblical way of reckoning days and nights. But... The other term Adventist is literally a rad reference to Advent. And in that regard, it doesn't refer uh, immediately, like first, like at least its original intention wasn't to like be the reference to Jesus's Advent as a child, but as um, Advent, as in like the second Advent, which that was a term and phrase back in the 1800s. So the second coming of Jesus, the second uh, return of Jesus. So... Um, That might not sound like that would be a dramatically interesting belief to put in your name. Like, yes, Jesus is coming back. Like, okay, don't we all agree on that? Hmm. But actually, no, in the 1800s, most Christians didn't believe Jesus was coming back um, uh, without other stuff happening. So uh, there was a wide belief in the idea among Christians that they had to become perfect and perfect the world before Jesus would ever return and this was the majority view uh, most Christians laughed at the idea that Jesus could come before the world was perfected. Um, they It was very much influenced by sort of this Constantinian imperial Christianity that had been for so long, this idea that the Christian empire was going to expand across the world. And so it was very revolutionary and rebellious for certain Christians to suggest that actually this was sinful, that Christianity for all its attempts to change things was going to end up failing that uh, God was going to need to come. Right now, it's just like, oh, this is the tradition. This is just the widespread view. But back then, Adventists, um, and at that time before, Adventist Millerites, because that was kind of like, the Millerites were sort of this movement that eventually led to um, the Adventist church that we have today. Hmm. They were distinct and different, but kind of like, the Millerites were this movement that was all popularized by a biblical interpreter who suggested that he could predict the date of Jesus's coming. Mm. Uh, he predicted it for 1844, that and never of course, out it well. didn't happen. Yeah. And most of the people in that event lost their faith, but a number of people refused to lose faith in Christianity after that. And um, they went on in different groups, and the ones that ended up growing. Uh, into Seventh-day Adventism uh, were uh, a collection of individuals who found hope in this idea of the Sabbath. Uh, So the name Seventh-day Adventist grew out of this kind of like these two major doctrines that started everything. The idea that uh, if the Bible tells you that uh, Saturday is the Sabbath and it was only imperial Christianity that changed it, uh, well, let's go back and value the Sabbath just like the Jews and then Uh, Let's not allow ourselves to be lost in the idea of an imperial Christianity that's going to somehow make the world perfect through human effort. Let's readjust our eyes towards God. So that's the name, all right? Mm. Long story. But okay, where do Adventists fall on the spectrum? Well, uh, Adventists typically, uh, well, overall, it's a denominational belief that uh, the dead are not living. So, um, they believe in something like soul sleep, okay. which is to say that, uh, when you die, you blink, uh, and just like when you sleep, uh, dreamlessly, you close your eyes and suddenly it's morning again. Um, basically that's what happens. People die and then the resurrection occurs and it's one second later and suddenly they're at that day in time. Um, so Adventists don't go around thinking that, uh, there are people in heaven who are looking down at them, uh. Precisely because there's not really a lot of biblical evidence for that belief among early Christians. Um, That's something that most biblical scholars recognize that this was kind of early Christians didn't have that idea yet. Um, That kind of came more with Platonism and with Christianity getting more involved with Greek culture. Yeah. Um, so Adventists, as you can already tell from these few doctrines, they're very much like, uh, let's go back to like the way things were. Let's, let's dig deep into what the historical beliefs were. Um, they are anti-hell. There is no hell doctrine. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our founders, Ellen White declared that, uh, the eternal hell doctrine was a satanic heresy. That was a deception created by Satan in order to paint God like him. Hmm. Uh, So uh, people were annoyed with Rob Bell suggesting questioning whether there was a hell, questioning whether these things. He
1: suggested much. He just kind of, here's all the views.
0: Yeah, here's a lot of questions. (laughs) And uh, have you ever thought of them? No, no. Our (laughs) denomination started out with like, you can't be Christian if you believe this because you basically worship Satan. Because hmm. that god you think of that's running hell is Satan. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, Rob Bell gets a lot more hate nowadays than Adventists do in evangelical circles. So hmm. it makes no sense, but, eh, you know, that's, that's the way the ball rolls. Um, so Adventists have these unique, and I'd say, like, those are already... The biggest ones, except there's one more, and that really plays a role in terms of like where I come from and how this book shapes. And that is that Adventists don't believe in inerrancy. Okay. Or they're not supposed to believe in inerrancy. It's, uh, we're kind of like dab smack in the middle of uh, the liberals on the one end and the conservatives on the other end. Because we believe that the Bible has human fingerprints. We don't believe that it's completely without error in every factual detail that it has. And we still believe that regardless, it's authoritative. <laughs> yeah. So it is this weird middle ground where it's like, we you know we're gonna affirm God's doing something in this book, and it is inspired. And not only is it inspired, you can't try to cut out things and say that's not inspired, and that is like inspiration is working in mysterious, powerful ways. On the other hand, that it definitely has human stuff in it. Hmm. it that's that you you can't just say that. These are dictated words.
1: So you're using inerrancy the same way as you're using inspired. The two equal each other. Because the way I'm used to inerrant is, nope, this English version of this translated version of this translated version of this translated version of Jerome's translated version of that other translated version, mine's definitely the only right version. Not even the Spanish one. Just mine. Well, now my. we're getting King James only <laughs> well. Um, uh, well, I, you could you could use NIV. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, but that, just you know, not you that many can't, people with that view for NIV. But, um, but you know, that's what I hear for inerrancy. And so, but you're saying inspired. So are you using inerrancy and inspired in the same way? Or no, no. Okay. so
0: I'm I'm saying like for Adventist inspiration refers to like God is using these texts. Okay. These texts are not like any. Uh, Like they may be written in similar ways to other human texts, but their usefulness and their way in which they are being utilized in the church is surpassing what would be simply a standard human text. So it's not just like, oh, it's inspiring, but rather there is something that animates this text that animated the writers who wrote this text that still speaks today in spite of the fact Mm -hmm. that it should have only spoke to its context. So, no, inspired here has a much more dynamic and fluid and and less, less rigid kind of meaning. Um, again, as it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the deal. Adventism, and I mean, the deal is when you go outside of what the foundations are and you start seeing how people technically are in practice, it can sometimes be kind of a jolting experience. So you will... Find uh, specifically in the area of inerrancy that Adventists, unfortunately, have had way too much uh, intimate contact with evangelicals, hmm. and that has led to uh, the ideas of inerrancy getting very much ingrained into people uh, without the word. Hmm. So what I mean is is that like Adventists are very into Bible prophecy because. Advent, you know, second coming, that's just kind of, it comes to be one of those interest pieces. Um, Adventists are very dedicated to thinking that they need to pay attention to these things and no. So unfortunately, most televangelists in Adventism have been highly influenced by evangelical pastors and inerrancy. And I think many of them hold to an inerrancy kind of belief. So what ends up happening is when they're preaching on the TV and lots of Adventists are listening to them, Um, they're not technically saying today, we're going to talk about inerrancy. Uh, we're going to give you the doctrine. It's not a doctrine. It's not part of our belief system, but they'll talk about the Bible in such a way that you are inevitably forced to think Mm. that this, you know, you can figure it out. Like, all right, well, God said it and we can trust it. And man, I think I figured out what inerrancy is, (laughs) you know, without anyone having to spell this out for me, that just naively thing seems like this is. This is where it's going.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, to be clear, um, I don't also don't hold an inerrancy. Um, I'm also not an Adventist, but um, wow, I also don't hold to inerrancy. So it's fine. I, I don't. Why do you say I wow? Didn't know that. I feel like there's. Oh yeah. Um, what? Yeah. Isn't this like the most conservative podcast out there? Mine? I doubt it. I doubt it. You must not have. You have, have deceived me. No, sir. <laughs> have I? <laughs> I? I don't believe I have. Um, I, I don't know I one time had a guest say um, I've had a lot of guests say a lot of things no this is definitely not the most conservative podcast <laughs> I know um, I know. <laughs> um, yeah no I'm more of a literalist if by literalist allegory is allegory metaphor is metaphor hyperbole is hyperbole to the culture that it was written to at the time that it was as opposed to America or Britain or Australia you know whatever country we happen to be in today um, that's probably a better way to read ancient yeah. literature like anyway as a side note What are you getting at in saying no to God? And I do want to be clear. I know what you're getting at because I've read it. But for those that haven't read it, um, and honestly, I like the book enough upon the second reading. Um, So one of the patron things is about 10 or so people. Uh, I send them a book every month. Uh, This month's was Iliadelio's um, latest book, which is a fantastic book. Um, Mine comes tomorrow. I've read portions of it. Nice. Nice. I think I'm going to send yours for March because I, I think it's a fantastic book. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, I, I, just, I just buy them I and feel s- honored. just buy them and send them. Um, so, anyway, what are you getting at in saying no to God? Because the cover itself is enough to make people go, well, here we go. Um, so, this is another, another book that the cover's like, yeah, I don't want to read that. Like, me too. I don't have any, I don't want to, why would I want to read that? Like, saying no to God? Why would I, of course, I don't say no to God. I'm God fearing person. Why would I? Yeah, it
0: sounds like an atheist title. Like it sounds like it's a new Richard Dawkins book, you know. Um, But the the thing is, it's the subtitle that gets you because it makes everything confusing. You know, a radical. Okay, I'm with you. It's definitely radical. Radical atheist. You know, a (laughs) radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully. Right. What do you mean faithfully? Did this just suddenly get Christian on me? (laughs) Like that doesn't make sense. How can you faithfully say no to God? Right. Um, And I think this is where your podcast title kind of comes in perfectly. Can I say this at church? You know, like this, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a pretty good litmus test. Like this, I wouldn't be surprised if this might be one of the most radical things you've ever had a guest suggest the question, can I say this at church? Can I say in church, mm-hmm. no yeah. to God? Can I reject God faithfully in church? Is this something I can even bring up as a discussion point? And for most, obviously, on both sides of the spectrum, liberal or conservative? The answer seems to be like, nope. Right. I remember one time I was uh, at a um, scholarly convention and there was one of the most liberal uh, progressive Christian publishers who will be not named, but you can probably guess, um, that had a booth out. And I was talking with one of their staff. And I just as soon as I started pitching it, I was like, well, the book is titled... And no sooner had I finished the title, than this girl turns and looks at me and goes, why on earth would I ever want to say no to God? <laughs> and I mean, dumbfounded, like dumbfounded look. And she was so nice. She was such a, a nice person, uh, very genuine. She was, but she was so sucked into it. Up until that point, I knew that my book would be controversial for conservatives. I did not realize that it is just as totally ingrained in any progressive liberal uh, that the same principle is true. Like The only difference between liberals and conservatives about inspiration or inerrancy is not about the doctrine itself. I'm pretty sure liberals and conservatives both adhere to inerrancy. They just don't, one just thinks they don't have it, mm-hmm. right? Like So conservatives are like, this text is inerrant it's not that liberals are claiming there isn't such a thing as inerrancy. It's not like they're saying God wouldn't be inerrant. They're just saying this text is not it. And so the problem comes that when you get a title like my book, saying no to God, I'm not saying saying no to the Bible. That The, the progressives can get on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that Bible is definitely not inerrant. Now suddenly you you point the direction at God himself and now suddenly you're like, Oh, I touched a sensitive spot here. Hmm. You know, this is this is the real holy grail of like where your belief system is tied in with this idea, this authoritarian concept that you if you really had God in front of you, you would not be saying no to him. And on top of that, why would you say no right. to him? On what for what reason? So why I had even, you know, partly. It's really good you asked about like that Adventist history and inerrancy plays a big role in this because since Adventists don't technically believe in inerrancy, but we've been affected by the doctrine of inerrancy, it left me in a very unique position in college in the sense that as I was deconstructing my faith due to reading different various scholarly literature and so forth, um, I realized right? I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't have to pick a side per se. I'm, I'm not in the traditional spectrum. So I'm able to look at this somewhat a little bit differently than most people who are in this debate because I can think, well, the Bible can still be great even if it's not inerrant. But then I realized, ah, wait a minute. There's something this debate has completely missed and sort of as a result of missing it, gone totally astray and that is that there are stories in the bible in which human beings tell god no and god says yep you were right Hmm. or you won or you defeated me like no i'm not kidding for those listening there is a bible verse that says you defeated god i'm not (laughs) kidding you it exists it's in genesis we'll maybe talk about it um, but the thing is, is that these texts are really interesting because inerrancy works on the premise that you, if you had God in front of you and He told you something and you knew for sure it was God, you knew it was inerrant. It's you're hearing it straight from you know God's own mouth. Well, then that changes the whole ball game. Now you know that whatever God says is true, and you got to go do it. But that's not what the Bible teaches, because the Bible shows examples of people who have the perfect inerrant word of God given to them, and they reject it, and God ends up telling them that they were right for doing it. Hmm. So right then and there, these unique, often overlooked stories, both in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament with Jesus, um, illustrate starkly that inerrancy is a completely worthless debate, actually. Because the Bible itself tells us that, in fact, inerrancy isn't really the quality that we're looking for. It's not whether or not we can know for sure we have God's words. There's something even more important that you need in order to evaluate those words. And that's really where the book kind of drives towards, is not only dealing with the issue of inerrancy, but dealing with the question of, what does the Bible frame as the real important question for understanding how one interacts with God.
1: Can you break through or break apart two of those? In the book, you talk about, well, there's a lot of Old Testament stories, and there's a handful of New Testament stories as well, of where people have been like, nope, not doing it. Don't feel like doing it or, you know, struggling back and forth with God. Because I think, here's the reason I ask when I hear you say that and kind of also when I read it as well, like a part of me kept coming back to like, all right, well, I'm just being tested then. Like, is this a, you know, is this a trick question? Like, am I supposed to do this? Was I not supposed to do this? Maybe I screwed up again. And one of the things I wish you to, Given some time to, and I may ask you about later if we have time, is saying no to to like a Joel Osteen type of theology of <laughs> you know I did the, did it right. So obviously this I must I must be hearing the voice of God because look look at this nice shirt, like, look at this nice right right look at this nice shirt. So can you break apart maybe one core central theme um, or a story in the Old Testament and then maybe one in the New Testament of where people have just said a flat out no or or beaten God.
0: Yeah, no, no. I, um, so, I mean, I can answer your illustration with one story, I think, pretty sure. pretty interestingly well. Um, that would be uh, the story in Exodus 32, uh, where Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. The Israelites down below have gone ahead and set up a golden calf. And uh, God gets so angry in the story, he says to Moses, forget it. I, I regret I ever saved these people. I'm turning my back on all my promises i'm going to go and murder every single man woman and child uh and i don't care and then he says and i'm going to completely enrich you i'm going to make you abraham start the whole thing with you we're going to make you the promised people you're going to have your your status elevated from prophet to the the progenitor the 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 new abrahamic start and uh you know as far as a typical evangelical inerrancy framework would go, the correct answer from Moses should have been, uh, thy will be done, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, you know, Uh, your ways are not my ways. Uh, What seems bad to me is ultimately not my decision because I have a faulty mind. Mm. Uh, You know, you could just list these things Mm. we say, Moses does not do that. Moses turns to God and says, no, you cannot do this. It's evil. And uh, and I mean, he says that. And then on top of that, he argues that if he does this, nobody in the world will believe him or trust in him anymore because he clearly can betray people. In fact, he says pretty much they'll almost rightfully think you led them out here to kill them hmm. because... I mean, if you knew the future, you kind of did. And then on top of that, he points out, well, God, you would be breaking your promises. Now, in all that regard, it's fascinating that um, Moses roots his rejection of what God is saying in God. In fact, uh, what John Calvin describes it as in his commentary is that uh, it's like fighting against God through God or going from God, uh, or I think Karl Barth describes it as you uh, searching within the heart of God for the power to resist God. Um, In other words, Moses tells God that I know your ways and these aren't them. Uh, This is not who you are. So he's not saying I've got all this reason in my head and I've got all this brain power and, I'm smarter than you, and I'm telling you don't do this. He's rooting faithfully every objection to God that he's giving in something that he knows to be true about who God is. And then in chapter 34, two chapters later, God says, all right, I'm going to show you what my ways are. And then it's everything Moses had hoped for. I am ever merciful, always forgiving, always kind, always long-suffering, right? Everything opposite of how he's acting in Exodus 32. So, of course, most people have just tried to skip the story because it is, for them, the part that screws with their mind is when it says, and God changed his mind about the evil that he was going to do. And that's usually where people focus on, Or even some theodicies focus on where they're like, oh, let's talk about how how much does God's foreknowledge know and blah, blah, blah. And those are all interesting questions to some degree. But the much more interesting question is, why can Moses tell God no? That is far more fundamental than anything to do with God's foreknowledge or anything else. What's fundamental is there is something about the divine human relationship that's being depicted here. How does Moses have the authority and the ability to stand up to God and win to tell God your will thy will not be done mm. and God says yep 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 and then at the end to confirm that that really wasn't his will that that Moses was right his ways were not those ways that he was suggesting now what does that mean what does yeah. that kind of leave us with where does that it's a confusing story God's acting Contrary to God's self, Moses knows this, but then why in the world are you following this God? What is he doing? Like, this is a really messed up story. And it gets even more complicated because in the midst, in the middle chapter, chapter 33, it actually describes their bickering and fighting as an example of how God and Moses used to speak to each other like friends. Hmm. And, And so this is divine friendship this arguing over whether God is evil. Um, And so that just strikes you as like, this is a really weird idea. Like if I didn't read it in the Bible, I would swear it's just no way that it's in there. So when you look at that, um, you have to struggle to say, okay, well, if God is acting contrary to his ways, why is it that God is, is changing, but then God's not because God he is still at the end of chapter 34 the same way as Moses claimed he really is. So then what's happening? Well, Martin Luther argued, and Calvin agreed to, but Martin Luther really po- pushed this view that this was a test that basically God was putting a, uh, was putting Moses to the test as to whether or not Moses understood who God's character was. Did he know God's ways, and could he tell the difference between God's ways and, say, a foreign god like Moloch's ways? Would, would Is it that Moses was following and obeying whatever, quote, God, quote, says, or did he know Yahweh specifically?
1: Hmm.
0: Now, that kind of a difference is important because... Um, Peter Rollins, when he tells a a kind of modern parable, he says, well, what happens if you get to heaven and Satan's sitting on the throne? (sighs) And what if Satan says, well, I I actually beat God. You know, God's Jesus is in hell now, and um, I'm sitting in the throne, so I'm God technically now. Uh, But don't worry, I'll honor all of the agreements. I'll give you your eternal life, all that jazz. It's a really complicated, sudden, you know, situation, because now the question is, were you only following God because he was going to give you eternal life? Or was there something about his character that made him different from Satan, right? Is it just that Satan's an angel and God's God? Or is there a character difference that makes God who he is so that even if Satan's sitting on the throne, he's still not God because he doesn't have that character? Um, Moses, Martin Luther argued, was being pushed on this point, that God was putting him to the test to see, will you know that this is not who I am? And will you stand up against me? As like an analogy, this would be similar to a teacher uh, in a classroom who has spent 20 minutes on a topic and he wants to see whether or not his students have paid attention. And so suddenly he contradicts everything he said. If nobody reacts He knows that he wasted his whole 20 minutes. If somebody raises their hand and says, isn't that the opposite of what you've been saying? He goes, congratulations, you got an A. You were paying attention. Everyone else
1: fails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it's like that kind of an analogy here. Moses already knows God's ways. So he's going to recognize when there's suddenly this huge deviation. And so God deviates and Moses immediately reacts. And God says, yep, you're right. Now, this is also important because this is a a penultimate moment for Moses. This is when he suddenly is going to make, you know, he's going to leave the people from Mount Sinai. Like this this is him coming as the lawgiver. You know, it matters whether he knows the God who he's giving law to. With that regard, then, it is so fascinating to realize, um, like, An argument that uh, was also given by my own denominations, one of their leaders, Ellen White, um, who argued that in this story, God was also testing the selfishness of Moses. So you said the Joel Olstein effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Will Moses be captivated by the idea of getting rich off this, that he has the ability to elevate his status and his family in a way that Abraham only had? Uh, been given before. And, you know, he can throw all these people away and suddenly have a whole new dynasty start with him. And, you know, but what had God done? He had tasked uh, Moses with protecting these people, with leading them, right? So this is also a deep test um, that Ellen White argued was regarding whether or not Moses would really be a leader and would choose to put other people ahead of himself. So, In that respect, right, this story has several elements to it. The question that kind of leaves us with is, is this a one-off or is this something that's supposed to, like, occur multiple times? Mm -hmm. So a much shorter story is Genesis 32, where suddenly you can look at uh, Jacob by the Jabbok River who gets attacked by God. God suddenly wrestles with him. And, I mean, the word in Hebrew means to get dirty, to get dusty. So basically, it means you're tumbling around and around, like both of you are trying to kill each other. And so it's just an all out brawl. This isn't like a <laughs> WWE competition. you are not like there's no just kind of holding each other. And um, it gets that way eventually by the end of the story. But it, it, you, you realize this is a very dirty fight. And by the end of the story, the sun is coming up. They've been wrestling all night. All this time, Jacob has not known who he's fighting with. He doesn't know it's God. He's thought that this is just somebody who wants to kill him. Now he sees that it is God or it is God's messenger, whichever. And instead of saying, oh, oops, this is the divine will. Oh, oops, I got to obey what, you know, God is clearly intending. He fights even harder. Even after his hip socket is displaced, he's still holding on and managing to keep the, uh, the individual from fleeing. So he tells this cursing agent, this thing that came to kill him, he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And then this angel or God himself says to Jacob, well, I am going to go ahead and give you a new name. Your name is going to be Israel. And I'm giving it to you because you have fought God and you have defeated him. Now, Israel means those who fight God, especially in the context of this story. That's how it's being understood by the author, those who fight God or, you know, the God fighter. So here we have a really strange story. Jacob tells the one who seeks to kill him or curse him, I'm not going to let you leave this with a curse. You're going to give me a blessing. And then he gets the blessing that he will and his descendants will continue to fight God and defeat God in order to keep getting the blessing that comes from fighting God in or You see, it's like a vicious circle. It just keeps going. Hmm. So it's, it's very strange what's happening here. And it seems to be illustrative of basically what the story in Exodus is talking about, divine friendship. This idea that when Jacob is faced with an image of the divine, which seeks to curse, which seeks to give ill will, He refuses to accept that and demands that he get a blessing instead. By demanding a blessing from something that looks like it's cursing, you're essentially affirming that you believe the true nature of what you're facing is a blessing. In other words, you wouldn't ask Satan to bless you because it is not in Satan's nature to bless you. It is not Mm. within the demonic's ability to give good. So when faced with something demonic and you say I want the good. I want the blessing. It's very much like Moses saying, these are not your ways. Show me your ways. Uh, It's saying that you are coming at me as something I don't believe you are, and I want the blessing. So now what name does he get as a blessing? You will fight God just like now. That means you're going to fight more cursing images of the divine. And your descendants are going to do that, and you're going to win. Now, who are you really defeating? Well, it's not really that you're defeating God per se. And that's the reason kind of why God is giving this as a blessing. You're not defeating God. You're defeating the bad image of God. This, this what God looks like to you, you're overcoming that. And then you're continuing to struggle constantly in this battle to come to a better understanding of the blessing of who God is. And your descendants, Israel, will continue to fight. In other words, this is a very progressive view of how uh, the people of God will come to understand in their divine friendship who God is. And that friendship is going to mean a lot of wrestling, a lot of rejection of bad images of God, and a real affirmation of a God of blessing. Now, that's incredible as an image because not only does it just outright destroy the idea of inerrancy it's meaningless suddenly it's not inerrancy that matters whether god said it or didn't say it what really matters is it doesn't match god's character is this who god really is like that just changes the whole ball game because now you're looking at trajectories and you know, implications and all these kinds of things that get a big 10,000 feet from above portrait, not the nitty gritty. I'm in this one moment. So, you know, in order for Jacob to reject that image of God, in order for Moses to reject God's words, they needed a whole bunch of other stuff, a large collection in which to draw from and judge this image of God from, which just tells you like, this is exciting in a whole deeper kind of way than we've typically been thinking of, like what God's words are, it's not that just God says something and it's right, or God does something and it's right, it has to match his character. And if it doesn't match his character, that's when you fight, yeah. So that's when you would say no, yeah. But you also ask, like, okay, is this in the New Testament, right? All right, okay, this is great, we've Looked at the uh, Old Testament, we've seen things there. Did this all change with Jesus? I know there's people out there who would say, "Okay, red letter Christians." And I mean, I, I nothing against red letter Christians, but by I mean, that you I mean mention, the
1: organization or people? No, that not the call organization. Okay. No, 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 no. I just want to clarify. I
0: mean, the many Christians so. who like to say that I'm okay. a red letter Christian because okay. I just read the red letters of Jesus, and that's what matters. Okay, and
1: Sh- yes, sure, except for Jesus was quoting the other things that you didn't read but that's okay. yeah
0: yeah yeah. but i mean like there's a (laughs) lot of good people out there who who espouse this and and their answer to everything is well i judge what jesus said if jesus said this that's what i believe right i don't deal with all that messy stuff in the old testament i don't deal with this other you know what jesus said that's so basically you've gone from, these people have gone from saying that the whole Bible is like a divine command theory. God says it, I have to believe it because he said it. And they've kind of moved it now to a canon within the canon. Now it's Jesus's words in red Because some Bibles, for those that don't know, print the words in red uh, of Jesus, just in case somebody doesn't know.
1: This is just a small aside as a joke. Do you think that Jesus' canon within the canon is better than Paul's canon within the canon? Because some churches only preach on Paul and none of the words in red, except for Easter.
0: I think that everybody's canon within a canon is usually constructed at best because of a context that they're in. Fair enough. I just was so curious because you said I canon within a canon, so I was No, curious. agreed. I don't think there's a single canon within the canon that can work universally Okay. by virtue of the fact that it's a canon within the canon, <laughs> right? The only canon that works universally is the entire thing yeah. because you get to choose your canon within it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's within the nature of a canon within a canon to be limited in how good it is. Yeah. It's just being useful for whatever context you need to limit it for. But like the truth is the only universal part is really the whole that you get to choose from because you get choice. There's a lot of material there that you can hone for whatever context you're in. Yeah. Uh, that would be my answer Fair enough. for that. Fair enough. Um, But no, I mean, unfortunately, some people have sort of just assumed that, well, and I mean, I can kind of understand why they would. Jesus is the incarnate living image, self-revelation of who God is. He's the image of the immortal. Okay, he comes to earth. Here we go. Now we don't have to get it from Moses or from a prophet. We got God himself incarnate on earth. All right, that sounds pretty legitimate. And so people think if Jesus said it, I believe it. Now, aside from that, you still run into the issue of the fact that like different people remember Jesus' statements differently, and you have different versions of the same teachings, and they don't all agree, and avoiding that. The truth of the matter is, Jesus himself is not depicted in the New Testament as at all espousing this. And it kind of makes sense if God does not change Then it makes sense that the image of God we see in the Hebrew Bible, uh, especially in something like rejecting cursed images and embracing positive, probably is not going to change when God comes. And in fact, that's what we find. Uh, There's a few stories in the New Testament in which Jesus faces uh, somebody and presents himself in a very unflattering way to them in order to basically do the same thing as with Moses, to provoke them. So the version, the story that I'll give as an example of this um, is in um, the Gospel of Matthew, where... I mean, it's in both Mark and Matthew, but it's the story of the Syrophoenician woman. And uh, this is a story that troubles many Christians. And it's kind of frustrating to me that that Christians have not picked up on this idea so that they understand what's really happening in this story, especially in Matthew's version, for sure. Um, So what we have here is a story in which... uh, in the Markins version of this story, you have a woman who comes and finds Jesus when he's trying to hide away from people. And she says, oh, please, Lord, drops at his feet, you know, oh, please uh, heal my daughter who's, who's you know, going to die. And um, Jesus says, well, look, here's the deal. Miracles are kind of a zero-sum game. Uh, if I give it to you, I don't give it to the Israelites. And you see, the Israelites are children and Well, we Jews like to call you dogs. So understand what you're asking from me. You're asking me to give the the miracle either to the dog or to the child. And now, I mean, really, you're a mother. You understand that doesn't make any sense. I can't do that. I can't, I can't not take care of my kids and give it to the dog instead. I, I hope you understand. I just can't help you out. Um, It's a logical argument that Jesus is presenting, a zero-sum game. I cannot give to you and to them. So then the woman comes back to Jesus and basically rebuts him. And it's amazing how many people who comment on this story literally do not notice that she is rebutting him. Martin Luther definitely saw that she was rebutting him. He was like, darn, like this girl is is smacking Jesus. Like, in fact, the way Martin Luther describes it is that she has taken Jesus under her grasp and yanked him. Like she has just grabbed that dude <laughs> and said- me. You will listen to me. <laughs> you, yeah, literally. And Martin Luther says, this is the beauty of this story that Christians are called to be like this woman and grab God by the neck and like not let him go. And the reason why she can do it is because she points out that Jesus is pretty much completely flawed in his logic. And she does this by giving another illustration using Jesus's illustration. Hey, guess what? When the kids eat, they're messy, and the food falls to the ground, and the dogs can lick it up. So guess what? You're wrong. It's not a zero sum game. Uh, It turns out that actually the dogs end up getting at least some part of the miracle. Uh, so now Jesus in Mark's story turns to her and says, for saying this, right? for this part, and what was that? Rebutting him, saying no to him. For this, you will have everything you want. Right? The thing that was like the key to your success is not accepting what I, Jesus, have told you. Congratulations. Hmm. Now in Matthew's version, it helps clear things up. Because in that the Mark story, you're just like, okay, that's weird. Maybe if I know the story in Exodus and stuff, I can kind of hear the echo of what's going on. But Matthew clearly hears the echo. When he takes Mark's story, he says, ah, Mark, you didn't write it good enough. You didn't give enough hints that Jesus is toying with this woman. So I'm going to make it clear. So in Matthew's version of the story, he actually has... um, He has the woman not just come to the house. He has the disciples walking with Jesus, and the woman is crying out after him. And Jesus is purposefully ignoring her in the beginning. And the disciples recognize that something is wrong, because although Jesus is ignoring her, he's not telling them to send her away. And they recognize in the story of Matthew that something is wrong here, because if he didn't want her, he would have sent her away. But he's not talking to her. So this is just annoying to keep hearing her cry after us. So they actually come to Jesus and they say, hey, what is going on here? Why have you not sent her away? And Jesus does not does not send her away, does not deal with it. Mm-hmm. So they go in the house and the woman comes in. Now this part of the story is just like Mark. But at the end of the story, when she rebuts him and gives her illustration, Jesus goes ahead and says, Great is your faith. Like your faith, this is an example of your faith. Not just for saying this, but like what you said is the definition of faith. And because of it, you're you're going to have your daughter healed. Hmm. So faith in Mark and Matthew for the Syrophoenician woman is telling Jesus, no, you're wrong. And rooting it, in this case, in God's justice, in morality, in logic, And then saying, nope, what you've said doesn't make sense. And God goes, yep, you win. That's how you do it. Good job. That's faith. Hey, disciples, were you paying attention? (laughs) This Gentile woman, this quote unquote dog, just told me no. Have you guys ever told me no? No, you, you, you reject my teachings all the time. But you don't ever tell me no. You just go, yes, sir. Yes, sir. She said no. You should take pointers from her. That's what faith looks like.
1: I can't remember where I read it or heard it. It might've been my pastor. I can't remember. I don't even remember which gospel it was in, but someone had told me at one time, you know, everywhere that he's trying to show the disciples how to be, they always end up screwing it up, but it always ends up centering around a woman. Like you did it wrong, but you see her, she did it right. And you, in this other story, you did it wrong. She did it right. And you, you did it wrong. See what she's doing. She did it right over and over. And it might be Luke. I can't remember where it was, and now I'm gonna to have to go back and search for my notes. I remember writing it down, but something you said there reminded me of that. It also, in all of that, all I keep hearing is, you know, you know, my sheep know me and they hear my voice, like, mm-hmm. like, 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 like my kids. They know my voice, and they know when I'm angry, and they know when I say something untruthful, even if I don't want them to say untruthful. Yep, because they know me. They've they've always known me. Um, you know, and that's an overgeneralized metaphor, but you know what I mean. Um, No, it's very true. You build all of that in the first half of the book, and then you pivot into some things to say no to. So you like say no to prejudice, say no to patriarchy, say no to a handful of other things. But there is a section in here that I want to ask you about, oh gosh, where did it go? It's oh. in the saying no to homophobia. Um, oh,
0: wow. You're going to go there. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, it's this section on David and Jonathan. Um, and, okay. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, And so can you break that apart a bit? And so what are you getting at there? You say in here, this is how you start it, you know, with the increased attention to such an issue as homosexuality, it is garnered socially, and and I added in the homosexuality part, and equally growing attention has been given to people, to the biblical material and its relevance to these issues. And so what does David and Jonathan have to do with homosexuality?
0: So, yeah, um, it's interesting that for those who have researched this is familiar. For those that have not ever researched, this will be surprising. Mm-hmm. And that is that um, in, the, <laughs> in the Hebrew Bible, uh, when it describes David and Jonathan's relationship, it describes it in terms that are, usually reserved for romantic relationships between men and women. So um, some examples I give, uh, like in, um, you have in 1 Samuel 18, one, uh, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Um, and when David weeps over Jonathan's death, he states that, quote, your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women, 2 Samuel one twenty six. 26. Um, And so some scholars will make the suggestion that there is potentially um, a bisexual relationship occurring on David's end. Because we know David liked women, but David has something going on with Jonathan here. So there is something that goes beyond what is a typically... Uh, evangelical idea of what is acceptable romantic relationships. And there's also other verses that give you reason for potentially thinking this. For example, the text reports that Jonathan and David kissed each other in 1 Samuel uh, 2041. And it reports that Jonathan stripped naked for David to prove his loyalty in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. And Saul actually accuses his son Jonathan of shaming his mother's his mother's nakedness, which is kind of a statement that carries a sexual con- connotation so if people want to see that that's 1 Samuel 2030. so um, and also when the text states that Jonathan took great delight in David um, which is first 1 Samuel 191 it uses the Hebrew word that we used to describe Shechem's uh, sexual desire to marry Jacob's daughter uh, Dina in Genesis 34. so there is sexually charged language going on here that leads some scholars to suggest that it would not be improbable that David and Jonathan had something going between them. Now, here's the thing. Some approaches to this whole question really try to push this. And for, you know, for LGBTQ apologists, apologetics, they really want this because of course I can understand it, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it would be great for them to be able to have a prominent character in the Bible or characters in the Bible that they can, they can see and identify with and connect with on that level. Um, for evangelical apolog- apologetics, this is like—it's crazy in their eyes. Like, oh my goodness, this is nuts. You know, what have you done? This is this is baloney. You know, this is natural affections in the Middle East. Men kiss together, and they really do. I actually, when I was in the Middle East, um, I saw. Uh, Two men, and suddenly on the street, go ahead and, and were kissing and, and on the face and stuff and hugging each other. And some guy nearby me turned to me, quickly f- thought that I was a dumb American and was like, No, 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 no,
1: no gay. Like, these no,
0: normal. <laughs> I was like, Yes, yes, I, I've heard, I've heard, that's okay. So, you know, like some evangelical apologetics will be like, Yeah, this is. This is just what's going on with David and Jonathan. They're just much more open with men-to-men relationships there. You know, it's not sexual. Of course, that's ignoring the fact that there is sexually charged language used. Mm-hmm. But my point in that chapter is to kind of bypass both of these arguments and to say, look, it, what, here's the deal. Maybe it is just Middle Eastern, you know, men uh, bromance, Right. That might just be it. it. might just be a really good bromance. If that's the case, okay. But here's the problem. Even if it turned out that this was a homoerotic relationship, what is the problem here that drives evangelicals to be disgusted by that idea? And see, like, that's where you can really point out homophobia, right? This is not a question of, saying um you know you disagree with their actions right i mean characters in the bible kill lots of people mm-hmm. all the time if you think killing is wrong yeah that should disturb you right you should be disgusted that he genocide and all these things right but then like somebody says oh it might have been that david was bisexual oh my god this is horrible <laughs> at that point you have to say why is that disgusting to you and the genocidal factor isn't how come you know you're totally down for the idea that women just got raped and pillaged in this event over here yeah well that's just the man's world he lives at right but now suddenly bring in the relationship with jonathan potentially and now like your whole view of david changes your whole view of john that's homophobia That's where you are unable to accept that characters in the Bible have this specific, uh, this specific experience. And you're going to now have your whole view of that. That's sinful. It does not matter whether you are a conservative Christian who thinks that uh, homosexuality is wrong. It really doesn't matter. Because if you are disgusted by the idea that your favorite Bible character or uh, this Bible character might have had that issue, okay? And that this is potentially portrayed in a non negative or at least a non judgmental way in the books of Samuel. If that is the, your biggest issue, that is saying something deep about your own soul and your own homophobia that you have not dealt with, because you shouldn't have those feelings and those reactions to that. Uh, and specifically, you sh- your opinion of David or Jonathan should not change. Because of that, that is judging people based off their sexual orientation. That is homophobia.
1: Yeah, is this view of Jonathan and David new? Like, does this have like like a lot of views? Like, they come in and out of the modern, I guess, psyche. You know, they you know, when you start research, you're like, oh, this isn't new. People have been talking about this for 500 years. It's just we didn't really read about it. Like, is or is this something where it's like, yeah, you know, now that we know this and we know this and we know this, eh? Or does it have any historical context going back through the centuries?
0: I cannot answer the question of whether it has a historical context. I can tell you that it's been pushed mainly now that there are and is a reason and an audience for people that this could really matter for, which definitely drives scholarship to pay attention to issues that it might not have. It's possible that people have brought this up in the past, but again, it that's not an in the past there was not an environment that really was allowing for such a discussion to you know occur in that way. But I would definitely say you should ask that question of a Bible scholar who is doing that work um, because they might know some really interesting stuff about it. Yeah. I can't I can't tell you a definitive answer. I on appreciate that, it's definitely I appreciate the honesty. Definitely, <laughs> mostly prominent now because yeah. of. Just the new expectations, the new desire on the part of LGBTQ people to know what the, what biblical scholarship has to say that could affect their lives. Uh, it definitely has been something brought up. Again, it may very well be the case that again, you know, the conservatives are right, and this isn't really, um, you know, uh, a different sort of relationship between Jonathan yeah. and David. But even if it was, why the heck should that matter? Why the heck should that change anyone's view of those characters? Why should their sexual orientation make a darn difference in regards to who they are as people? That is the essence of homophobia. And that's what drives me so mad and crazy about when people are um, debating these things. But, of course, you know, I imagine you probably would want to also mention kind of um, the non-literal way in which people are reading those uh, texts mm. like in Leviticus that mm-hmm. talk about, you know, the death penalty for being yeah. gay.
1: I'm a big fan of, and I'm sure you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. And if you haven't seen it, I'll find it and I'll send it to you. There's like, um, it's like a Dear Abby kind of thing from a Canadian newspaper many, many, many years ago. Have you seen this? You know what I'm talking about? I think so. It's like, you know, Hey, I heard your issues with homosexuality. So I just got a question, you know, 14, 15, whatever questions. I just, my neighbor gets really angry. You know, when I'm out here on the day that I'm supposed to, you know, butchering this cattle and he's really upset about the smell and, you know, it says that I get to kill him. I'm just curious, you know, if you think it's okay and, you know, what's a good going rate, you know, for my oldest daughter, because, you know, times are tough and my wife won't stop mixing her garments, you know, with, she's just not doing it right. And (laughs) I just want to know if you think it's fine if I kill her, because, you know, I just need to do it. You know, I got to. I got to be faithful here. I really got to be faithful. And I'm badly paraphrasing all this. It's very tongue in cheek. Also very funny. Um, I'll see if I can find it. I'll send it to you. Come on. You have time for one or two more questions. I've yeah. well exceeded my hour that I promised you. No, I'm, um, I'm here for you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so for fear of being heretical, because I don't care, I'm going to read you a part of, right how you open saying no to exclusivity. Because when I read it, I literally highlighted it and I stopped reading because I was actually kind of afraid to go to the next page. Not because I was worried about what you had to say, mostly because I hadn't really phrased it in the way that you did. And I didn't know what my answer was for myself, if that makes sense. Um, But I think that has to say more about how I view uh, the end times and what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what hell looks like as opposed to what Christianity is. But you say, here's what you say. There are around 15 million Christians in America and 25 million worldwide who identify as evangelical, among many widespread beliefs, such Christians hold to is one that has a particularly caused unnecessary pain and division both in and outside of the church. What is this harmful doctrine? It is the teaching that being a Christian is the only way to find salvation, or in other words, get to heaven. And then you go on to say, that idea in Christianity is exclusive, barring all other paths, uh, is not new or is it novel. And then I'd like to pivot there to the quote at the very beginning where you just say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I have no other sheep that are not... I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And that would be Jesus. And so I actually haven't finished that, that chapter. I've I've yet to finish that chapter. And so in earnest, what are you getting at there? Because I would like to finish the chapter, but I'm still uncomfortable with answering those questions for myself. And so I'm curious, where are you going at with that?
0: So one of the things that... Um, I really wanted to do in this chapter, and I think you, I think you'll enjoy the chapter. I think it, it will surprise you in terms of not being.
1: Like, I just skipped I think, it intentionally every time.
0: I think what uh, I think what you kind of probably have noticed in the book is that even on topics that have been done to death, uh, even the homophobia chapter, I am a trying to give a perspective and approach to the issue that has not been beaten to death by other people. I'm trying to give trying to give something unique that will help people like yourself to look at an issue with completely new eyes even if you've heard it a thousand times hopefully like my version of it makes you go oh wow okay there's something new here like I didn't see that aspect of it that's interesting so in this chapter what I try to deal with is looking at the entire bible from the beginning of the Hebrew bible to the end of revelation examining how God is depicted in relationship to other nations in terms of how he respects their religious identities and as well as how revelation understands where the limits of salvation actually are. So some of the things that are covered are, for example, um, some extremely radical and really cool texts in the Hebrew Bible, such as Malachi chapter one, where God tells the Israelites that um, they had just come back in Malachi from exile. They had rebuilt the temple and God says, you know what? You guys are worshiping so badly. You have so little of your heart in it. You know what? I wish that you would close up the temple and just stop all your services and just not worship me anymore. Cause it is just horrendous. Um, and then he says the most, one of the most radical things, he says, every nation around you gives me perfect praise they all praise my name and give perfect incense. They all, and it's just the most shocking text because it's basically saying all these other nations are somehow worshiping me correctly and you don't. Right. But, and, and that my name is glorified, even though obviously like that means that like when someone's worshiping Marduk, like if they have a good heart, they're worshiping Yahweh. Hmm. And that's just, is this remarkable text. So remarkable that actually translators change it if they're evangelical so you will open up malachi 1 and if you're not reading the nrsv or a jewish translation if you're not reading a good really solid bible scholar translation you are going to see translators with their evangelical bias change the text to future so now it's God says, all these nations will give me perfect praise. They will eventually give me perfect innocent incense. And there's absolutely no justification for that in the Hebrew Hmm. text. That is just them adding that in. And the the King James Bible did that too. But at least in the King James, they put it in italics. So you knew that that was being added in. Uh, But you don't know that necessarily with the NIV. You don't know that. So when you read, you could read the Bible in these translations and sometimes for the text that they change, you would have no idea that you were just reading one of the coolest passages because they changed it to something not cool. Um, (laughs) So like another great example is in Micah chapter four, where I talk about how Micah has this vision of the new earth where he says that all the nations with all their religions are going to come to the temple And they're going to walk in, and Yahweh's going to be in there, and he's going to directly speak one-on-one with all these people. And he's going to teach them his ways. He's going to teach them how to turn their swords into plowshares, this beautiful vision. And then they're going to all leave the temple. And Micah says this remarkable saying. He says, well, every nation will continue to march to their God despite their, their interaction with Yahweh. They'll all call their God their specific name. We Israel, we will continue to call God correctly as Yahweh. And the reason it's okay is that all the other nations will still call their they'll still call their God whatever name they want, but their ways have been transformed by Yahweh. Hmm. So they're now worshiping their gods in the way that Yahweh wants to be worshiped even if they can't accept that it's Yahweh who's really their God. So God's okay. And Micah, he's like, it's all right. You can keep calling me whatever you want to call me as long as you can all figure out what my teaching is and, and start living the way I intended. So in the Hebrew Bible, you have these examples of just remarkable texts that give you this portrait of a universal portrait of God who's very particular, Yahweh, but has a universal aim and has a lot of grace towards other people in how they want to identify him as when you come to revelation, right? Revelation's a book that's just constantly berated as being something that's like, it damns everybody, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket,
1: <laughs>
0: but actually that's really, really not true for the book of revelation. Uh, in fact, the book actually has a number of passages that tell you that the majority of people end up getting saved. I'm not kidding. like there 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 is a reverse remnant, as some people have described it in revelation. It's not that there's a remnant, a small people who get saved, a reverse remnant. Like the majority end up getting saved, and a small remnant end up getting screwed over by Satan. So you have visions over and over again where you'll be told that you know there's a city of thousands of people, seven thousand people. And there's a great earthquake that shakes the city. And and of course in Revelation, a city is usually representative of the world. So the the city falls and a third die and two thirds repent and are given salvation. And it's like, wait a minute, what was the moral of that story? What's the moral of that vision? Two thirds of the world get saved. One third ends up getting uh, lost. Wait, that seems like I heard differently by the televangelist. He told me one third gets saved and the two thirds go to hell in a handbasket. So you see this again and again. Revelation has this terribly violent imagery. You know, oh look, there's all these locusts and they these angels go out and slaughter you know uh, a third of the earth. And but what's amazing is like how many angels it says go after a third of the earth. It's it you know like it's it's huge that number and the fact that that many angels can only you know if you go with the imagery in revelation they can only kill that many people uh on earth right it still means that the vast majority of the earth has not been touched by this Hmm. and you see this again again so like although the violent imagery can like starkly strike you again and again revelation presents this portrait of nope most people are doing good most people repent most people choose the right option. And then as you get towards the end of the book, things get even messier with that imagery because suddenly you're told like, oh, there's this great battle and um, you know all the kings of the earth go to war with the Lord and, and then they're killed and the birds are eating them and feast of the gorge, right? But what did it describe as what killed them? It says that, oh, there was a rider on the white horse and, you know, he, he was the word of God. He had written on his thigh and he had a sword coming out of his mouth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The sword he kills people with is the sword of his mouth, but it's the sword that comes from the word of God. So wait, is this really just an allegorical representation of God's teachings putting people to death, right? But then if your teaching put someone to death, that's kind of like baptism, because that's like you're putting to death the old ways. Because there's a new way, and someone can go, well, wait a minute, you're reading too much into that. But guess what? The kings of the earth are like the big baddies of the book of Revelation. They're terrible, terrible. Kings of the earth and the nations, those are the two big groups. They are always in the wrong. And so, again, they're supposedly killed and eaten after God kills them with, you know, the word of God's sword. Well, guess what happens? The new earth is made. We get the, the heavenly Jerusalem. And... What does it tell us? It tells us, and the kings of the earth and the nations will come into the new Jerusalem and their glory will fill it. Hmm. What the freak? (laughs) (laughs) What's going, they were dead, right? They've been a stable character in this book and they just got wiped out and here they are. And their glory fills, the the people who are the enemy in the whole book is now suddenly they're filling it. And then that's the kings of the earth, right? But then you have another reference in the same chapter where it says, oh yeah, and there's the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The nations, the other group that died, they're going to get healed through a tree, right? Like there's there's so many aspects to the text of Revelation. People have, have either unfortunately bought into the violent imagery and let that twist their view of God, or they just reject the book and say, Nope, uh, it's just, it's a bad vision. The truth is the book itself is chock full of really complex imagery. It is not asking to be read as just a simple understanding. Like in the hell chapter, I talk about revelation, how revelation says that God throws hell into hell. Like, that's one of the ideas in it. He throws death and Hades into hell. Now, here's an interesting question. How can anybody end up being thrown into hell if death and hell already got thrown in? Because in Revelation, hell is not an eternal place. It is a lake of fire that's built. It's literally made at the time of judgment it starts. And then it ends because it gets wiped away with the new earth. So it's a, like a process here. So once you get thrown in, except the only people who are told to, to, to burn forever and ever in Revelation is um, Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. Those are the three.
1: I want to clarify all of that. So you're saying all streams, same river, basically. Like all, all signs point to, to God. It doesn't matter the, the faith. And, well, I'm not, no, and I'm not and I'm not necessarily disagreeing, by the way. I'm Just not clarifying. I'm not
0: exactly saying that. No. Um the reason why I'm not saying that exactly is for instance with Micah Four, his vision is not that all the religions on the earth are doing it right. They're not. That's why they're having wars with each other. It, it's that Yahweh is going to teach them all his ways. Okay. And they're going to change, right? It's not that they don't know anything. It's not that they complete they obviously do know some things because. Malachi can say that, you know, they're worshiping him perfectly. So clearly they do know things that allow them to have a relationship with God and understand things. But at the same time, I think like Karl Barth would say, all religions are flawed, including Christianity. We're mm. all screwed up. We're all in need of God to guide us. So it's not like, oh, you know, yeah, all all paths will end up getting there. As Karl Barth would probably be, you know, pointing out none of the paths are getting to Rome, including our own. You know, it's only by the grace of God that, you know, heaven is coming down for us. We're not going to get there on our own. We're going to just keep wandering. But the interesting point of kind of like taking that look in that chapter of all that the Bible has to say is to understand that the vision it has for humanity is that we're all together in this. Like in the in the first chapter on doubt, right, what does Paul, I, I quote Paul in First Corinthians 13, where, what does he say about Christianity? You know, for now we see only in part, but then we'll see face to face, right? Mm-hmm. Most Christians would probably think that that was like, oh, a description of before Christianity, right? Before Christianity, we saw only in part in the Old Testament. And then we got Jesus, and now we see face to face. no, no. Paul says what, G, faith in Jesus is an enigma. That's the word in Greek that gets translated sometimes uh, loosely as like a glass darkly. Hmm. But The word is enigma, and it works much better as an image for, for people who know that word. It's a perplexing, distorted image. That's what Jesus is, according to Paul. And, you know, a, according to Paul, this distorted, perplexing image is wonderful because before Jesus, we were really in the dark we 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 had hopes and aspirations we thought we were going in the right direction but we didn't have anything concrete to kind of point us and when we got Jesus we got a good nudge in the right direction yeah but we didn't necessarily have something concrete and i think that like this kind of comes down to the idea in the gospel of john of the holy spirit which is you know jesus saying to the disciples i am not going to be able to, uh, I am not able to tell you things right now. I can't guide you into all truth right now. But don't worry, the Holy Spirit is going to do that. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you into truths that I can't. And not only that, but you're going to do greater things than I'm currently doing. You're going to surpass the enigma and continue to learn new truths that shed light.
1: I have 98 more questions, but we don't have 98 more hours. So, or time. We just don't. We don't have any more time. Um, so, I want to ask you this last question. Um, I actually really want to ask you about why you don't address atheism specifically. Like, just just say no to all of it. Um, I don't think the <laughs> That's book. A good question. Um, you can answer it if you want. If not, I'll ask you that larger question that I asked you at the very beginning. Um, it's entirely up to you. I am curious. I definitely would. Yeah, I can definitely. Let's, let's roll with it. yeah, so why um, the question I actually wrote down, I only scripted three actual questions. The rest I have thematically what I wanted to talk about. but my question was, how do we reconcile your book with the view of an atheist? You know, like why don't why don't we just take it to its logical fruition, which then made me question about uh, there's there's people that call themselves like agnostic Christians, but that's a different thing than necessarily atheists. I think anyway, but, but how would you address your book or what, what do you think you would say to someone in that mentality?
0: Well, okay. So this is where I get to plug in my sequel that I'm writing. Right oh, now. there we go. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a second book, more academic, that's called, um, fighting with God, a theology of confrontation. How many pages um, so is this?
1: If it's more academic, what's,
0: it's already past the page. It's already past the word count that this book. Was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, it
1: is. And it's not Laura Mipson, just for, just for tipping it out there. It's, it's, not, it's not just typeset it in there.
0: No, no, no. no. It's, <laughs> it's, so, what I'm trying to do is tackle, uh, I'm trying to take what I wrote here in this book as very popular, practical, um, you know, lay introduction to this idea. And I'm trying to build it into a much more rigorous, systematic kind of theology of like let's look at this really nitty gritty. Let's go into the every possible argument you can think about this and what could go wrong. So hopefully when this is finished, if somebody says, "Man, this makes a lot of sense from this book," they'll read the other book and they'll say, "Oh, I can take my I can take these ideas now and go head to head with the greatest apologetic theologian whatever. And I will be able to walk circles around them with these ideas. Hmm. Right? That's what I'm trying to do there. But part of the project is dealing with atheism. Now, I didn't deal with atheism <clears throat> in this book, and you're actually the only person other than an atheist to ask me about this. So kudos to you that you you did. Okay. Um, the reason why was, again, my goal in writing this book wasn't to try and deal with the question of whether you did or did not believe in God. It was to kind of take at face value that in the Bible, uh, all these characters do believe in God. This is part of their religion, right? So if Israel in its very name means those who fight God, if the whole religion of the Bible is built on this foundation of resisting God for the sake of God, then I figured, well, you can't say it's logical to take it to its conclusion that we just reject God altogether because the whole religion apparently is built on this premise of doing this fighting. So this isn't something that like we're coming up with as progressive modernists who are like trying to understand Nietzsche. So we're coming together to understand how we can reinterpret our scriptures. No, this is an idea that's been in the scriptures the whole time. We just have been ignoring it. So when I wrote this book, I thought, okay, I'm going to just focus on that element. How do I just deal with the internal hermeneutics of people who do believe in God and are reading scripture or even agnostics who want to understand whether or not Christianity has any truth call, you know, claims to it. And I think that this book tries to kind of give some reasons to say, yeah, you, 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 there is another option. Yeah. Now, what do I think? Well, in the new book I'm writing and I kind of give a preview of it then, what I'm trying to do is kind of, I, I'm doing I'm dealing a lot of philosophy in this, but definitely delving into some big names and trying to think very carefully about some aspects about this conversation. One of those aspects is this. Um, I don't believe it is possible to be an atheist in the sense that new atheists claim that they think they're doing. So when Richard Dawkins will go ahead and say that, you know, I am an atheist, I, I just do not believe that there are any gods, and I do not believe, and I am against all ideas of gods, and yeah, I don't think that's philosophically possible, because the way that life in reality works is I can only reject the thing I see. I can't reject something I don't know that exists. Hmm. So I have to imagine it. I have to conceptualize it. And unless I can do that, I cannot actually make a a meaningful philosophical statement that says, I reject this. So if I don't know what hate is, I can't say I reject hate. It's meaningless. I can say the words, but I don't know what hate is, so I don't know what I'm rejecting. Um, If I do know what hate is, right, then I must know what its opposite is. If I reject hate, then it means I know what trajectory goes the opposite direction. Because, again, this goes to the idea of implication. Everything we say implies something that we didn't say. If I say I like you, it means I don't not like you. <laughs> it, we, this is the way language works. We don't think about it, but we our brains always hear two things every time we speak. So, again, like we're very specific creatures. I believe Dawkins, when he uh, says... I reject this God. I reject this God. But Dawkins wants to take it a step further and say, as atheists, I can say, I reject all possible gods. And I don't think there is such a possibility. Hmm. You will always be limited to rejecting um, a specific God. And the reason you're rejecting that specific God is usually going to be, or is often rooted for some atheists, In moral arguments, uh, you know, and so when they say this is not a God because he does this, 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 the implication of that is often, well, so you were really saying that if this God wasn't those things, you wouldn't have that against it. So for some atheists, they kind of like, there's a book out currently that says like, it's called the seven types of atheism. So when I say that, I mean that, you know, I'm acknowledging that there are many different forms of atheism there's no one atheist and they all fit into that category some are pure naturalists who uh their rejection of god is because they fundamentally believe in materialism and they don't think that the idea of a spiritual realm can fit within that understanding of the world and how metaphysics you know they just think not that's not there's no metaphysics there's just physics That's a different kind of atheist, right? Their understanding is going to be rooted in science. But there are atheists whose views are fundamentally a protest against the images of the divine that they see.
1: When is this book out?
0: So, I mean, if things go well, I'm hoping by the end of the year.
1: How many more words pages so chapters, it's about
0: 110,000 words at the moment and i think that it still's got probably another 30 40,000 more to go for some some aspects of hmm. some few chapters i still have at the end that i have to fill out yeah i mean essentially you have to kind of look at the fact that there are atheists who are rejecting these images of god and in that capacity Since I don't think that they can go beyond that. They can't reject things they don't know. So in my opinion, like, you either are an atheist towards specific things or you're agnostic towards all possibilities. Yeah, I don't think you can apply atheism towards the possibilities. You can only be agnostic. No idea. Haven't seen it, so how would I know? I think, like, that's philosophically the truth of, like, where you need to be. If you're atheist, right, the A in atheist in the Greek can mean... Uh, not, but it can also mean against. It can mean to be against something. And many atheists are using it in that sense where they're like, well, I'm against this religion and here's my reasons. I think that in that respect, they are very much like a Jacob. They are very much like a Moses. They are very much like the Syrophoenician woman. They are seeing a problem with this image, whether it be logical whether it be you know, moral, and they're saying, no, I reject this God. This is not who I would worship. This is not who I think makes sense as the creator. Eh, I'm not going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And in that capacity, there's a lot of uh, resonance between those kinds of atheists and prophetic figures in the Bible. So I yeah. think that what Christians, and I hope in like that book will kind of play a role in, is Christians need to view atheists as um, their helpful conversation partners, also as potential prophetic voices to really help them realize, like, the prophets could be rash. Isaiah would walk around naked. Ezekiel laid on his side for a year. You know, people do crazy things, okay, who (laughs) believed in God, right? So if you have an atheist who's angry and like, this is crap, and this image of God is horrible, right? That can still be... And a a prophetic voice, uh, regardless of what you like or don't like about the presentation, if there's real substance to that content that they're pointing out there's a real problem here, that's a prophetic voice that just like Jacob rejecting a cursed image and just like Moses saying, nope, this is evil, it needs to be listened to and it can help guide Christians in terms of how they're thinking through these issues, I think.
1: I referenced it at the beginning, so gave you a fair warning, which, to be honest, is better than most people have gotten. The first handful of people, I just sprung it on them. So this question uh, is my favorite of the year. So when you, Matthew, say, here's what God is, here's why it matters, like when I say the divine, or God, whatever word you want to use, what are you actually saying? Like, what is that for you? Uh,
0: God, for me, is like... God is what is above what we use the words to describe God. God is a call for us. Uh, like for me personally, God is the God that's spoken of in the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. It's the God that Jesus Christ comes to show. But God cannot be really accurately confined to those descriptions. I can't just say, look at, look at Jesus, look at Yahweh, right? Because what is Yahweh? It's a continual... Struggle that Israel has to discover who he is and with Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit Continuing to guide us into better and more truth So when I say God I'm referring to the God that Jesus came to reveal who Yahweh claimed to be and at the same time I'm saying the best images we have of that God are always an enigma They're always in part they're always, like Paul says, with a huge dose of humility. Hmm. So the God that I'm looking for is both a God that is near and dear and personal. And at the same time, holy other, very much something that I am just trying to get my head in, and grasp around.
1: Nice. I like it. Where do people go? They, they hear this and they're like, okay, this guy knows more things than, than I do. And so I want to read more. Like, where do we, where do they go to either grab your book uh, learn more about what you're doing, follow you on the places? Like, where would you point people to?
0: Well, if they haven't been bored yet by <laughs> going through this very long interview, then <laughs> I suspect that they will be interested in something else. So that's pretty. That's a good sign that they made it this far. Um, so <laughs> if, if so, they can, if the, <laughs> <laughs> they can go to... you're uh, still here, clap once. They can go to the book's website, to God dot com. Um, There's links there to Amazon and Kobo and, you know, the gamut of different booksellers, Mm -hmm. pretty much any major place where books are sold, the book should be available. um, So they can go there. I also have an author website. If they'd like to see different things, articles, et cetera, other interviews, a link to this podcast. Again, if they lose it, um, uh, that's at uh, www.matthewj.com. Courtman, K-O-R-P as in Paul, M-A-N.com. So lots of good stuff there, interviews, et cetera. Uh, uh, If they want to connect on social media, they can find me on Twitter at M. Kortman. And they can find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, Matthew J. Kortman. Uh, I'm definitely open for communication. If people want to reach out, they want to ask questions. They want to be like, what is this? What is that? Yeah. I'm down for that. Cool. You you think there's somebody out there who should debate me or talk about this issue. I'm fine with having a conversation with anybody. And this is a major thing about me because of my academic training and my humility about knowing what the limits of knowledge are. I am perfectly fine with somebody saying, wait, you're wrong. You, you've you got a you missed this. You, you, you got this argument bad. Wait, no, I don't agree with that. Great give me a good me argument. Yeah. Give me a good logic. Shoot me down like the Syrophoenician woman shot Jesus down <laughs> and I will be happy and I will change. I will recant. I'm fine with that. If you haven't done that, don't expect me to drop everything. I think just because you disagree with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you again. I have enjoyed your time and I'm sure thank you to your wife as well for, for letting me borrow you for the, for, for y'all's, uh, you know, Valentine's Eve. So I, I appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor and a really great interview. Great conversation.
1: Appreciate it. I have been at a loss for almost a month on how to end this episode. I found it hard to wrap up all the stuff that we talked about. I mean, Matthew just brought so many different concepts and viewpoints that I'm just not really used to entertaining. His book does the same thing. It is 100%. But I just, mm, the concept of saying no to God, of recognizing what is the voice of God and just literally saying that doesn't sound like you is not something that I've really entertained a lot. In the way that we say no to oppression and say no to patriarchy and say no to homosexuality and say no to fundamentalism, say no to all these different things that don't really bear the image of God, I find that beautiful, but really hard. Really hard to do, and really hard to really communicate well and explain well to others. And Very special thanks again to Salt of the Sound for the use of their music. If you haven't listened to their stuff, you need to. More music is coming. I promise I'm almost caught up on all of the back catalog of transcripts. I've already got quite a few things ready to rock and roll on that. I just need to find the time to do it right. Be patient with me, but in the meantime, again thank you to this all to the sound i cannot wait for next week for the next episode and and i hope that you're blessed